Welcome to the Mindful Medicine Podcast. I, Juliana Zapatel, will be your host, bringing in experts to discuss a holistic approach to well-being using Eastern philosophy and Western research. Today, I welcome Scott Shute. He was the head of mindfulness and compassion programs at LinkedIn and now is bringing it into the rest of the world by mainstreaming mindfulness and operationalizing compassion. Hi there, I'm Scott Shute, and I was the head of mindfulness and compassion programs at LinkedIn. After a career there, I was an executive. I was the head of global customer operations and had a team of about a thousand people. So I've had these two parts of me. On the one hand, I've had this career as an executive. On the other hand, I've had a practice since I was about 13. I came across uh, spiritual teachings. I come at this from the spiritual side. And started this contemplative practice at 13. I started leading sessions when I was in college. Uh, and it's been a huge part of my life ever since. And then, you know, I can go into the story, but long story short, as I ended up bringing this to LinkedIn um, and ended up creating my own role there, which was quite an interesting journey. But that's that's kind of the high level how I got started. I'd love to hear more about what exactly happened when you were 13 that brought you to this idea of wanting to learn about spirituality? Well, I grew up on a farm in Kansas, in really super rural Kansas, like an hour to the nearest fast food type of rural. And, you know, there was definitely a local uh, religion church that my parents had gone to and their grandparents had gone to. And it was, so I always had this relationship with, you know, worship and relationship with divine But how it was happening, the translation of it in this particular religion, like this didn't make any sense to me. I felt the connection to the divine in nature and, you know, in the way that the sunlight would filter through trees or just whatever, just getting a nudge. And so I had all these questions that when I was 10 or 11 or 12, that my, I didn't really like the answers that my parents or my pastor was giving. And then my brother Uh, I'm the youngest of five. One of my brothers had been touring America, trying to make a living as a rock star. He had come back to run the farm with my dad. And, you know, long story short, he had come across something else. And when he introduced that to myself and my sisters, I just started weeping. I was 13. And it was like, it was like I had come home after searching and searching and not just searching what it felt like was not just searching since I was 11, but searching lifetime after lifetime, after lifetime, after lifetime, like two parts of a magnet being separated and finally coming together. Yeah. That's a beautiful story. I'm curious if you saw at that time in your life that this would become part of a career path for you or <laughs> like personal or, you know, what did, what did it feel like? No, uh, I was just trying to, I was a, you know, young, dumb teenager or whatever. I was just trying to get by, you know, it, get by seventh grade or whatever I was doing. I think for me, things really kind of hit home when I was a senior in high school, I was 17 or 18 years old. And my other brother is got an engineering degree and has done really well. And so since I was in second grade, I was going to be an engineer because I was good at math and science. And that's what my big brother did. And that's what that's just what you did. I didn't, you know, didn't know what else to do. But 
when I was a senior, I was also the lead in our high school musical, you know, The Music Man, which is now fresh again. And all of a sudden I was conflicted and I felt like, wow, on this, it felt like a black or white choice, like a T-junction choice. And in that movie, in kind of the late 80s, this uh, the movie, sorry, in that time, in the late 80s, the movie Wall Street had come out. And there was this character, Gordon Gecko, who Michael Douglas played, and the theme was greed is good. And it's just this really kind of, you know, in my opinion, gross view of capitalism, right? So there's this part of me, it was like, oh man, I'm gonna get a degree and go work for the man and like sell my soul to the devil by going into business. Or, the other part, like I could follow my spiritual bliss and move to New York and be a singer and, you know, just, just be. And it really felt like a black or white choice. And I was in contemplation one day and I, I couldn't decide. And I was kind of asking the universe, throwing up my hands, like, what, what am I supposed to be doing here? And I got what I call the full body. Yes. Where I just knew, like I had this deep sense of knowingness and that knowingness came with an insight or an intuition. And that intuition was, hey, maybe you can change work from the inside out. I'm like, I'm 17. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? So, I, you know, I, I got my degree. I, I went into sales. Then I went into leadership. And all the while, I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to change work from the inside out. And all along, I'm asking, like, I was in these, what, at the in that moment, I considered like a boring job. I was doing semiconductors. And I was, again, kind of asking the universe, like, really? Like this, I'm supposed to be changing the world like this? <laughs> and and the message I got was, yeah, yeah, just, you're good. Just stay where you are. I'm like, seriously? <laughs> and it wasn't till I got to LinkedIn and it wasn't till I really, you know, six years into LinkedIn and 25 years into my career that I was able to put it all together and make a career out of it you know, to be the head of mindfulness and compassion programs at a tech company. And then, then it made sense because all of these experiences I'd had along the way allowed me to be able to do that job. If I had just gone, as an example, the mindfulness route, I mean, to be honest, a lot of people don't listen. They listen to me in a different way because I've done the work, right? I can change an executive's mind because I have been them in a way that wouldn't have happened if I'd gone the other way. The The other thing I think about this experience, you know, my perception when I was 18 was that this was a black or white choice, a good or bad choice. And I, I don't believe that's true. Here's what I believe. I learned a set of lessons by going the direction I did. I think that if I had moved to New York and become a singer, an actor, whatever, I would have learned basically the same set of lessons, just in a totally different context. So I think every one of our life's context is just as good of a learning opportunity, even a spiritual learning opportunity as being in an ashram or a monastery or backpacking across the world. That uh, really makes me think of the stage of life that I'm in and my peers are in right now, really trying yeah. to somehow understand and know everything we're supposed to do for the next yeah. 40 years and this immense pressure that's put on us. And when yeah. I spoke to people that I was interviewing you, they were like, ask him, how to find out what do I do? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, it's I, a great question. Yeah. I think, well, so there's several things. Let's, let's tease that apart a little bit. First, there's, if you're familiar with this concept called Ikigai, and there's a lot of discussion out there. A lot of people know about it. It's said to be, you know, of Japanese origin that roughly translates to life's purpose. And regardless of where it came from, I think it's a useful tool. 
right? And it's it's essentially the intersection of four circles, kind of a, a four-part Venn diagram. And the four things are what I love to do, what I'm good at, what I could get paid for, and what the world needs. And essentially, if I can get to the center of the bullseye of these four things and have all four things, then probably I'm in a place that I'm going to be happy. I'm going to feel fulfilled, right? What I'm good at, what I love to do, what the world needs, and what I can get paid for. Now, a lot of us, we get hung up on this, what I could be paid for thing, right? Because when we're like, when I'm 18, it's like, oh, I wanted to move to New York and be a singer. But I was well aware that that lifestyle probably was going to leave me as a waiter, you know, instead of a singer, unless I was really lucky. And then you just got to count on being one of the really lucky ones. And so this, this idea that I, that I need to make money, I need to make my way in the world uh, is a very real thing. And so we find ourselves, even in the roles I was in, like I was a salesperson doing semiconductor sales. You know, I, I wasn't aware of Ikigai at the time, but I was trying some of the same things. Like, what can I do to shape my role so that it's closer and closer to the bullseye, even if it's not perfect? So I think this is one way to think about managing your career. Another one is to think about your values, right? What's What are really our values? What's deeply important to us? Is, is being wealthy super important? Is having relationships super important? Is living close to a certain area? All these things turn out to be values. And then there's the things that just happen to us every day. Like if you think about the last five times you were angry, like, well, why? Well, probably it's because one of your values got trampled on, right? And so part of the beautiful thing about getting older is that we get a clearer and clearer picture of who we really are and what's important to us. So those things help along the way. And then there are two principles I live a lot of my life. It's not perfect for everything, but the two principles are go where the energy is. And the second one is it doesn't have to happen all at once. Meaning I didn't become the head of mindfulness and compassion all at once. Like if somebody had said, that's a job when I was 19, I'd be like, cool, sign me up. <laughs> but it took 30 years to get there. Right. And so, so part of it is go where the energy is, do what's exciting to you now, do what feels right now, but have a plan. You know, you don't have to have everything mapped out, but just have a little bit of a plan, you know, and then faith and hope uh, will get you over the hill to the next part of it. And what do you recommend to stay present and grounded during that time of following this process without a clear destination? I think one of the distractions for me in that age was feeling like the world was broken and feeling like I need to go save the world, right? And, <clears throat> and that's really distracting because how is it, okay, I need to fix the education system or the political system or the environment or the racial justice or, you know, name a, one of the thousand things that makes us mad. And I come back to, as I've, I don't know, matured, hopefully. One of my favorite quotes is from Rumi. Rumi and Hafiz, two of my favorite, two, my two favorite poets, both Persian masters from centuries ago. Rumi says, yesterday I was clever and I tried to change the world, but today I am wise and I'm working on changing myself. And I think this 
for me has been a really, really important journey. And it wasn't yesterday and today. This is, you know, 40 years of pain of, of making this migration of thinking that the world was broken. And I guess my biggest, one of my biggest pieces of advice back to my own self as a teenager was, would be let the world be, right? Let the world be. The world is what it is. And so if you work on changing yourself, if you work on improving yourself, if you work on developing your own talents, then it will emerge. Whatever you do will, yes, make the world a better place. But, but you start with you. I think um, it might sound a little selfish, but I think the whole reason for us being here is to learn how to give and receive love. It's our own development. And so as we develop in consciousness, we're then much more capable to be of service to the rest of the world. And so that that's my own advice to myself, you know, 35 years ago. I think that takes a lot of the pressure off of we all need to be world changers. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah, because the truth is the world is what it is. It's kind of like, you know, we're experiencing some weather here in California. It doesn't do any good for me to go outside and scream at the sky for whatever I want, you know, for, for there to be more rain or less rain or more sunshine or less sunshine. Like it just, it is what it is. And in the same exact way, that's how it is when we scream against the world that we want it to be something other than it is. The world is as it is. And so when we develop ourselves, then we can help, you know, then we can help make change. And this brings me to an idea you mentioned a lot in your book of when you're choosing this career path, coming from an intrinsic motivation, a place of really what is going to fulfill me and, uh, and feel good in my heart versus yeah. a lot of these ego-driven things that are yeah. put on us uh, from outside forces. So how did you find that in, in your life? And, and what do you say to people who may be struggling with that? Um, my view has evolved over time, right? I mean, to be honest, one of the reasons I chose engineering school versus being an actor was that it paid better. It was more reliable. Uh, so my value in that moment clearly had something to do with security. Or it had something to do with financial means because I didn't really know it when we were growing up, but we didn't have that many resources. We were we were cash poor. Farmers are traditionally land rich and cash poor. Uh, and I just wanted a better life for myself. And what I know is that we have these external forces. And at some point, you know, at some point, um, more does not equal more happiness. Um, one of the, the research around happiness, Sonia Lubomirsky has done a lot of work on this. Um, the science of happiness, and finds that in every culture, there is a correlation between money and happiness up to a point. In the US, I, it's probably different based on if you're California versus the Midwest, but it's around $75,000 a year in income. After that, there's no correlation anymore between you know money and happiness. So there's something about we need enough to get by and some basic level of uh, achievement and then after that, a lot of it is false. You know, the false pretense that that extra vacation is going to make me happier or the second car or the better car or the better house or the whatever is going to make me happier than before. Or somehow the social proof that I'm going to be happier if I have more status or what my friends think or even what my parents think. And I think real strength comes from the inside out by saying, 
you know what, I'm happy with whatever. And, and so I have, I have huge respect for people who made choices that frankly, I didn't make, like made choice to be a grade school teacher because they loved it, knowing that knowing what grade school teachers make in our society, or choosing careers that weren't guaranteed uh, a certain amount of money just because they love them. And I think that that is real strength and freedom if we can make those choices from the inside out. Do you notice sometimes with these big conversation topics that come up throughout life, there's often like that voice in the back of your head that can be really critical towards your personal <laughs> journey? And, and how did you see that come up? During oh, yes. Yeah, we can call it the inner critic or the obnoxious roommate. Uh, that voice sucks. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure everybody has experienced this. It's that little voice in your head that says, oh, what if, you know, and they it names all the bad things. And for me, it's just coming to understand what that is. And essentially, our whole journey in life is learning to replace fear with love. And it's essentially another way of thinking that it's learning to replace our behavior as mammals in a survival state to our behavior as a conscious being in an evolutionary state. So as mammals, you know, this, this fear center, the amygdala, the, the critical voice, you could think about it like that, is always looking for danger. It's always looking for the things that could kill us. So it's doing a very good job of telling us all the things that are potentially dangerous which was awesome when we were trying to stay alive in our caveman days, it sucks in our modern world, right? Because that thing is way too active. But over time for me, being able to replace it, you know, I'll give you a simple technique. It's as simple as, you know, if you're listening, you can close your eyes, you can put your hand on your heart and just slow down for a second and say your name and I love you right? Just your name and I love you. And there's other affirmations you could say something like, I'm perfect just the way I am. I am enough. And because if we think about the difference between we're a mammal trying to survive or we are soul experiencing this life with this personality that happens to be, you know, my mind, body, and spirit, like, oh, those are two very different things. Right? And if I can take the perspective of soul, as soul, I am perfect exactly the way I am. Right? Exactly the way I am. And when I think, and so there's that other voice, not the critical voice, but that voice of intuition. That's for me is that inner guide, that inner guidance that is useful. And so learning to manage these two things has been a huge part of my, uh, my journey, I guess you'd say. Mm -hmm. Have you read the Untethered Soul before? I'm familiar, but I haven't. I have not read it. Yeah, I, I really recommend it. It puts that in a yeah. beautiful way. the The one beneath the thoughts is where we can find all of this wisdom. Yeah. So this kind of leads me into the idea of the story that we tell ourselves and this constant yeah. narrative we have going on in our heads. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if you have advice for how to shift that narrative and, and what that can do for your life and your, your sure. overall happiness. Well, it's something similar, right? From this fear to love, uh, you know, evolution. 
Another way to think about this is that our amygdalas are like, in the same way that they're scanning for danger in a physical way, the mind does this as well. I think of it like this. If there's a, if there's a thousand miles of perfect road, but only one pothole, our mind goes right to the pothole, right? It focuses on the one thing that's wrong. And so true mindfulness is really seeing everything as it is, seeing it without judgment. And so we can see the 999 miles of perfect road and appreciate that as well as seeing the pothole. We're not, look, we're not ignoring the pothole. Of course, we want to see the pothole. We want to fix it. We want to move on. But let's not spend, you know, all of our time on the pothole. Okay, so what that means for our inner dialogue is we replace it with something else. Right. So that inner critic is always there. So we have to replace it. What do we replace it with? It could be the hand on the heart saying, I love you or saying whatever that is. Um, it could be gratitude. So the opposite of fear is love and gratitude is an expression of that. So, so saying out loud, saying to another person, writing in a journal, the things that we're grateful for is another way, a simple way of focusing on the light. Here's how I think about this. Focusing on the light gives us more strength to deal with the darkness. So it starts with being aware. Where's my mind going? Is it going to a place that's helpful or not helpful? You know, and if I can kind of take a step back and realize like, am I seeing this clearly? You know, one, one of my favorite questions to ask when I'm, when I'm in the pothole is what else is true? What else is true? Right. Because if I get fixated on whatever, I'm complaining about myself and complaining about the world. I ask what else is true. And there's all the goodness, the 999 miles of perfect road. So seeing the balance, I think, helps us. And then overcorrecting by focusing on the light makes us stronger to deal with all of it. Do you know what it is that makes us tend to have this negativity bias with so many things in our life? Yeah, totally. It's our evolutionary you know, it's the, it's the amygdala. This is how we stayed alive. Because when we were, you know, let's say cave people sitting around the fire at night, if a stick snaps in the woods, our bodies assume it's the most dangerous thing that it could be, right? We assume that it's a saber-toothed tiger. We don't naturally assume that it was just our, you know, cousin who got up to pee. <laughs> That's how we stayed alive, right? We evolved from the freaked out apes. We did not evolve from the chilled out apes. They all got eaten. Yeah. And have you seen some of these responses show up within your own career and journey? I know a lot of people look up to people in your position and think that you never experience like imposter syndrome or oh critic. And but I know it can be helpful and comforting to hear that everyone sure. does. So here's the thing. I have never, never come across anyone that did not have imposter syndrome. You know, so as an example, I'm coaching this person. Uh, I'm an executive coach as part of what I do. They are the president of a division. You know, they're 60 something years old. They manage 6,000 people. And the number one thing we started talking about is how they didn't feel like they belong there. Everybody, you know, nearly worships this person. And even them, even them, they feel like that. So the first part is to realize that, um, that everybody feels like this one time or another. All of us have failed. You know, one of the things I tried to write about, uh, you mentioned my book, I wrote this book called The Full Body Yes, is that I share a lot of my failures 
because partly because that's where we learn and partly because I didn't want anybody picking up the book and go, oh, well, you know, what are you going to tell me? You're a whatever, a rich white dude who's, you know, middle age, whatever, but I'm something else. It's like, no, all of us, all of us have struggled. We've all failed and in significant ways. Um, the real question is, you know, what do we learn from the failures? One of my favorite quotes is, you know, if you're going to go to hell and back, don't come back empty handed. <laughs> Meaning we all suffer, but at least learn something from the suffering. And do you feel like some of these ideas come from the Buddhist uh, idea of suffering as well? Have you studied some of those texts at all? I am not a Buddhist, but uh, I think a lot of it is similar, right? So I used to have this aversion to the word suffering because I just didn't want to frame it in that way. Um, I've talked to some scholars and friends who talk about how the word is essentially boils down to you didn't get what you wanted, <laughs> which is, you know, okay, that's uh, that might be suffering. But this this idea of striving, right? I've come to think about it how... For me, the tension is between, especially having had the, the life or career that I've had, is essentially how do I balance my ambition with my inner peace? And, and for me, this was the question that was on my mind for you know the majority of my career. I think I finally you know, have some answers to that. But I think that's what a lot of us are going through. We have this ambition. We want to get ahead in the world. We want to be somebody. We want to exercise our creativity and at the same time we want to be a good person we want to feel at peace and a lot of times it feels like those two things are opposed but I actually don't think they are but that's the tension that most of us feel i like rethinking this idea of suffering as not something to be afraid of and run away from but instead yeah. kind of use as a, a creative force or to create some of that ambition you're talking of absolutely absolutely yeah, and I notice a big theme of love that you keep weaving in here, and I saw it throughout your book as well. And I think that kind of correlates with this idea of compassion too. And For I'm sure. curious how that's shown up in your personal journey and the ways that that's shaped and helped you grow into where you are now. Sure. Well, look, at work, I talk about how do we operationalize compassion. This is kind of in my life's mission is operationalizing compassion. And, you know, Outside of work, what I would say is compassion for me is just another proxy for the word God, and God is just a proxy for the word love, right? So what I'm really talking about is, you know, how do we operationalize God at work or how do we operationalize love at work? Because essentially all these wisdom traditions, the, the root of, you know, pre-religion, when it was a spiritual path before it turned into a big religion, every single one of them talks about how the divine is essentially love. And if you become more loving, you're becoming more divine. Now, then pe people get involved and they decide, oh, you have to do this or that or believe this or that. And then we have you know, problems. But at the root of it, that's where we are. So for me, it, it, my whole life is this, like every single moment of every day is learning this simple thing about moving from fear to love in one way or another. So yeah, every single day, every single experience is this thing. It's just picking out the fun ones and making sure that we learn from them. For people who are newer to compassion, what do you recommend? Are there certain practices to cultivate that and, and use it more? Sure. We often start with self-compassion, 
right? This idea, you know, like the old saying or saying the thing on an airplane, if the airplane has trouble, what's going to happen? Like the oxygen mask going to come down. What are you supposed to do first? You put it on first so that you can help others around you. Because if you don't, you're going to pass out or worse, right? In the same way, when we have self-compassion for ourselves, it makes us stronger. And then when we're stronger, we are of more service to other people. So self-compassion, and Kristen Neff is uh, one of the experts here and talks about the three primary ways to develop self-compassion. Uh, the first is what she calls common humanity. This is this idea that you're not in it alone, right? We're all in it together. If you're experiencing something, probably the rest of us experience something very similar, different context for sure, but something similar. So it's not just me that's happening to. Second is just straight up kindness. So like we talked about before, the hand on the heart saying, I love you. And just trying to change that voice away from being critical to being loving. And then the third is mindfulness. And I don't mean it like meditation. I mean, mindfulness, like see the whole picture, the asking ourselves, what else is true? When we get fixated on kind of picking on ourselves, we ask, what else is true? In other words, what else is good about me or about the situation? And then when we grow in our own selves, here's how I define compassion for others. So it's always about capacity, and that's capacity, something that's ebbing and flowing all the time. Capacity for three things. The first is awareness. Do I have awareness of others? The second is, do I have a mindset of wishing the best for them, a mindset of kindness? And the third is the courage to take action, right? Do I actually do something about it? And so for me, it um, feels like my life's mission is, how does that happen in the workplace? Right? How do we develop products? How do we sell? How do we do everything in a compassionate way? But of course, it happens in every interaction that we have with every other person. Uh, our compassion or lack of it is on display. Something you mentioned in your book was imagining somebody that you may have some problems with or that annoys you yeah. and then trying to imagine yourself in that situation, how many times you've done something yeah. similar to that. Is That's that right. another one of those like compassion practices? Yeah. I got this from one of my friends. He's like, all right, I've got a three-step process in how to change other people. Right. So think of that person that just annoys you like crazy. Right. Think everybody think of that person. All right. Here's the three steps. First, think about how this person is doing that thing that really just irritates you and how annoying they are. Got it. All right. Okay. The second part is, okay, now think about it. Has there ever been a time when you've done something similar? Maybe you've annoyed people in kind of the same way and really get a sense of like, oh yeah, like I've done this too. And then the third step is there is no third step, right? We're not trying to change the world. We're trying to change ourselves. And so part of it is moving from judgment to recognition, right? When we have judgment, we're like, oh, that person is a problem because of, and then there's all this judgment we have about whatever they've done. But the truth is probably we've done something very similar or something that shows up in a similar way. And so we move into recognition. We move into recognition that I'm just like them. They are just like me. Yes, in different contexts, maybe different stages. We're realizing that we're all in it together. We're all just here to do our best. We're all just here to learn how to give and receive love. Some of us may be further along the path than others, but that's what it's about. 
in this shift of fear to love, do you feel that it's important to cultivate this through a meditation practice or are there other ways that may not have to be as difficult as sitting still and focusing on the breath? I think, you know, for me, I enjoy meditation. I enjoy, I would call it even further, I would call it contemplation or a spiritual exercise. The things in my own practice are all designed to fine tune, you know, my consciousness to something higher. And so that's what I'm interested in. And that has been super helpful for me. I know for other people, they get it in different ways. Um, it, of course, in the faith-based traditions, you know, my grandma, my mom really enjoy praying. That's their way of connecting. And I know that works for lots of people. For some people, it's, uh, you know, it, the, the, there's two parts of it, I think. The mindfulness, which is the development of self, and then there's compassion, how we interact with each other. The development of self, sometimes for a lot of people, it's just slowing down, whether that's fishing or going for a walk or going for a hike. If you really slow down and you're contemplative and you're appreciative, then that can be a beautiful exercise. And then this next step, going all the way to compassion. I do think that this takes a conscious effort, right? Because it's so easy to judge. It's so easy to think that other people are broken because they're not us, right? This is, this is actually, as, as I've gotten older, especially in relationships, this is one of the most disappointing things in my whole life is to find out that other people are not me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, that's so hard, man. <laughs> so just being able to let them be whoever they are and work on me, uh, that certainly helps. And then it helps my ability to see them as something more than just someone to judge. That's something I've definitely seen come up in my own life. And how do you, um, you know, let go of some of that control? I think part of it does come from a place of wanting to control and always know what someone else is going to do or say or be. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It kind of comes back to this simple I idea of just let the world be. Let mm -hmm. the world be. And when we focus on us, then we can change it. But we got to let the world be, accept it for what it is. Mm -hmm. And is this something that you discuss at LinkedIn? Is this uh, like, what does your program kind of look like there for compassion? Yeah. Uh, well, to be clear, I left LinkedIn, you know, a year or so ago, but what, what I was doing at LinkedIn was two parts. One was around mainstreaming mindfulness, and that was about making meditation practices and other things, uh, like growth mindset, but making them just as common, like mental exercise, just as common as physical exercise. So we did, we got everybody access to um, an app. We did contests around the app. We had a speaker series, just you know, steady drip of, of activity. And the other part of my job was to operationalize compassion. And part of that is teaching workshops. Part of that is to codify what compassion looks like within leadership, what it looks like in teams, what it looks like in product. Um, and so that's, that's actually the work I'm doing now is doing consulting and coaching and building things for teams that help to operationalize some of these conscious business practices. And so is this more of a secular version of mindfulness? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So uh, everything we do in the workplace is totally secular because that's that's what's appropriate for the context that we have. And the way I think about that 
because it's, it's interesting. Some people will say, oh, well, this is this is just mindfulness, right? You're not you're not going all the way. I'm like, yeah, that's right. But think about it like this. One of the things I do is I'm a cyclist. I, I road cycle, I mountain bike and I'm like, OK, uh, it's a primary hobby. But there are people who race the Tour de France. Right. There are professional cyclists who spend five, six, seven, eight hours a day in the saddle. And because they're racing, they have learned something amazing. They've learned about their diet and their sleep, about recovery, about training programs. And because they've been a professional at it, they've learned a set of things that are useful to me as a layperson. Right. I can take some of those training plans and I don't want to be in the Tour de France. I'm, it's not going to happen, but I can take advantage of it and I can make my life better. In the same way, there are professional mindfulness people, professional compassion people, whatever you want to call them. They usually show up as people in the faith traditions. Um, and then there are people at work. You know, So I try to offer, I build a bridge between the things I've learned of 40 years of studying in the spiritual works, build a bridge and offer something in a secular way so that somebody can have a better life. And we meet them where they are. It could just be some of the basics, like I just want to learn how to breathe so I can have less stress and anxiety in my life. Or we go a little bit further to talk about their mindset and shifting from fear to one of hope or love. We go all the way to compassion, which is operationalized love. And so I'm finding words and secular ways to talk about it, but to get closer and closer and closer to the root of what it really is interesting you found it through spirituality first and secularization later i think most people i've spoken to it's been the other way around yeah. and there must be a different perspective you bring too when you teach uh, maybe it's even like an unconscious thing that some of the spiritual teachings could flow through in, in, in a way for you absolutely i mean it's 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 like a fish in water it is who i am and so that's what comes out mm -hmm. yeah. yeah that's awesome well, that's everything I've come up with today to ask you about. Is there anything that you would like to share that you feel is important? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And if you're listening, thank you for getting this far. I uh, appreciate your interest in these topics. And, uh, you know, if you want to, if you want to reach out, if you have any further questions, you can find me all over the internet uh, website is scottshoot.com. You can find me on LinkedIn and feel free to reach out directly scott at scottshoot.com i'm happy to always happy to chat and meet like-minded people do you have any online offerings of meditation or sorts yeah you can find me on insight timer there's some free stuff on insight timer and also i have a course on insight timer that probably is behind the paywall um and if you are in the work world if you want something for teams uh i uh, if you go to changingwork.org that's my latest venture we're trying to change work from the inside out. So changingwork.org, you can find us there. Great. Thanks so much for joining me today, Scott. My pleasure.